My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Today, my guest on the show is Jeremy Rifkin. Jeremy Rifkin is a best-selling author of over 20 books, and he is a world-renowned futurist and economist. Mr. Rifkin, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So, uh, Jeremy, I've been enjoying your book for the last week or so, which is called The Zero Marginal Cost Society. So, let us jump right in the interview here, and let me ask you, what is the Zero Marginal Cost Society all about? Well, let me place this in context first. We are beginning to witness the emergence of a new economic system that's entering onto the world stage. It's called the Collaborative Commons. Now, this is the first new economic system to emerge since the advent of capitalism and socialism in the early 19th century. So it's a remarkable historic event. And this Collaborative Commons is going to transform every aspect of our way of life in the next 30 or 40 years. The trigger, the triggering event of this great economic transformation from capitalist markets to collaborative commons is something called zero marginal cost, which we shouldn't be frightened of. I know it's a business term. Marginal cost in business are the cost of producing an additional unit of a good or service after your fixed costs have already been absorbed or covered. Let me explain that there's a paradox deeply embedded in the heart of the capitalist system, previously undisclosed. And this paradox has been responsible for the great success of the invisible hand of the marketplace. The irony, and this is where the paradox comes in, is that this, this paradox is now leading to the ultimate triumph of capitalism. That triumph, however, is giving birth to a new economic system, the collaborative commons alongside the capitalist market. The, the paradox is this. In capitalist theory and practice, entrepreneurs are always in search of new technologies that can increase productivity, reduce marginal costs, so they can put out cheaper products, win over consumers and market share, and bring some nice profits back to their investors. So businesses have always welcomed the reduction of marginal cost. In economics, uh, we always say that the ideal optimum uh, selling point is where something is sold at its marginal cost. It's simply that none of us ever anticipated in our wildest imagination a technology revolution so extreme in its productivity that it could actually reduce marginal costs to near zero, making products and services essentially priceless, abundant, nearly free, and no longer bound by market forces and the profit drive. We began to see this zero marginal cost phenomena affect entire industries with the inception of the communication internet that we all use today. We first saw it when a little music uh, service called Napster emerged in 1999 and all of a sudden millions and millions of young consumers of music became prosumers and they began to produce and at least share their own music with each other at near zero marginal cost bypassing the recording industries. Then hundreds of millions of young people began to become prosumers and create their own news blogs, share information and news, bypassing the traditional newspaper and magazine industry. 
again, a near zero marginal cost. It doesn't cost very much once you've paid for your computer or your smartphone to send your own information to others. Then young people began to share their own knowledge on Wikipedia at near zero marginal cost, bypassing uh, uh, paid for uh, uh, commercial uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, et cetera. And then, of course, in my industry, publishing, uh, young people began to create their own free ebooks at near zero marginal cost, uh, producing and sharing knowledge with each other uh, and bypassing the publishing industry. So the recording industry was crippled in five years with the near zero marginal cost phenomenon. Then young people uh, with uh, videos, they began to produce and share their own videos on YouTube at near zero marginal cost. They started watching less television, going to the movies less, and sharing their own uh, film experiences with each other. Uh, this devastated uh, especially the television uh, business. And of course, newspapers and magazines went out of business, or they created blogs because they couldn't compete with near zero marginal cost uh, uh, without some very basic changes in their industry. And I don't have to tell you that book publishing has really suffered a rapid decline in revenues as a result of the zero marginal cost phenomenon. So in less than really uh, 15 years, this zero marginal cost phenomenon has dramatically impacted entire information industries. But until very recently, economists uh, held out the belief that this zero marginal cost phenomena would only infect and affect information goods in, in the virtual world uh, with the communication internet. And they uh, believed that there was a firewall and that the zero marginal cost phenomena would not cross over from the virtual world of bits to the physical world of atoms and begin to affect physical goods and services the way they affected information goods. That firewall has now been breached. Yeah, we are actually able to dematerialize, that is to say digitize material objects and then eventually rematerialize them, yes. the reverse process. It's a reverse process and what's making this possible is uh, the morphing of the internet. The internet is now morphing into a super internet of things. Let me say that 40% of the human race right now is up on the internet. They're using cheap cell phones and desktop computers, and they're producing and sharing information near zero marginal cost. We have democratized communication across the planet. And just recently, the Chinese announced a $25 smartphone, a computer. That means that the rest of the 60% of the human race, much of whom are making $2 a day, in 21 days, they can finance their own smartphone and that's going to completely democratize the communications of the planet. All of this in less than 20 years. But what's happening now is this communication internet is morphing. Let me, let me go back for a moment. All the great economic paradigm shifts in history occur when t three technology revolutions converge and come together to create a general purpose technology platform. And that is new forms of communication converge with new forms of energy and new mechanisms for transport and logistics. Every economic uh, arrangement, every society requires a form of communication to manage economic activity, a form of energy uh, to power the society, and a transport and logistic mechanism to move economic activity uh, between sellers and buyers. That's all based in your book, The Third Industrial Revolution, isn't it? It is, and expounded on actually in more detail in the new book, The Zero Marginal Cost Society. In the 19th century, first industrial revolution, we had a coming together of communication, energy, transport, and logistics. Steam power printing replaced manual printing, so we reduced the printing cost uh, and the transactional cost. We could put out a lot of cheap printed material. And then we introduced the telegraph. So steam power printing and the telegraph became the communication medium. 
Coal, abundant cheap coal, became the new power source, and the locomotive on national rail systems became the transport mechanism to create national markets. That was the first Industrial Revolution, 19th century. And the Brits led that Industrial Revolution. In the 20th century, we had a second Industrial Revolution, a new coming together of communication, energy, transport, and logistics. Centralized electricity was the new communication uh, breakthrough, and especially the telephone and later radio and television. So this became the communication media to manage a cheap oil for our power. And the new transport and logistics system, of course, was the internal combustion engine and national road systems. And the Americans, the US, led this second industrial revolution in the 20th century. It's clear in the business community that the second industrial revolution has matured. Actually, it's on life support. Fossil fuel energies are more expensive. The centralized communication technologies are, are old. The technologies that we use to move economic activity, like internal combustion engines, uh, have exhausted their S-curve, very little productivity left. So we're in a situation now at the end of a second industrial revolution of the 20th century with very expensive renewable energies and outmoded technologies. So we're seeing a slowing of GDP. We're seeing unemployment rise around the world and a greater a maldistribution of income between the rich and the rest of the population. However, is, as this second industrial revolution is maturing, we are on the cusp now of a third industrial revolution for the 21st century. A new convergence, if you will, of communication, energy, transport, and logistics. So, the communication internet that we have now, it's morphing into a super internet of things by converging with a very fledgling energy internet and a nascent, automated, driverless transport and logistics internet to create a single super internet of things. It's a platform, what we call a general purpose technology platform. It's the framework for a third industrial revolution. So these three uh, internets that are now emerging, communication, energy internet, transport and logistics, are sending sensors out across the economic value chain. We have 13 billion sensors now and those sensors are connected, for example, to our food being produced in the agricultural fields, monitoring the soil, monitoring the growth of the food, sending data back to these three internets. We have sensors connected to warehouses, distribution centers, and smart roads, sending data back across the economic system on what's happening with our freight, our cargo, uh, where is it en route to its destination. We have sensors connecting to factory production on the factory floors, monitoring in real time how much production is, is coming off the assembly lines. We have sensors now connecting vehicles, uh, sending data back to us. Even the electricity grid with the energy internet, we're connecting sensors so we know what every appliance that's using electricity is doing at any given moment. So IBM says by 2020 we'll have about 50 billion sensors connecting everything, every contrivance, every appliance with the entire human environment, all feeding data into this communication internet, and emerging energy internet and, and logistics internet. By 2030, 100 trillion sensors connecting everything with everyone, both the human environment and the natural environment. Essentially what we have now is an intelligent nervous system, a brain, if you will, that can connect the entire planet. Now, when people hear me say this, first they get excited and then they get terrified. It's exciting because we now can connect the human race in real time so that everyone's directly in touch with everybody else with tremendous implications for thinking as a human family, as a single species on this planet. 
The scary part is, what about data security, personal privacy, cyber terrorism? These issues are now coming up as we move to the Internet of Things, and I address that, as you know, at length in the book. If we can find a way to ensure, which we will, data security, privacy, and, uh, and uh, prevent cyber terrorism, this is a great boom forward. And here's what it allows us to do. If you're listening, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I just wanted to stop you for one second there because there's so many amazing and fascinating facts that you quoted and, and things that I want to jump in. But I want to stick at the sort of the broad picture for a second and, and talk a little bit about capitalism. Because you did mention that the second industrial revolution is at life support. Uh, and you gave uh, some reasons why people are fearful of that fact potentially. One that I would like to bring is perhaps profitability. I mean, if everything is being sold at zero or near zero marginal cost, then profitability goes out the door and then we cannot get the return on our investment. And then that goes back exactly at the heart of capitalism, which is basically the accumulation and reinvestment of capital. Yeah. Well, infinitum. So, so I've interviewed a bunch of economists on my show so far. And, and one thing that I have to share with you is that it appears to me that it's easier for economists to foresee the end of the world than to foresee the end of capitalism. That's very well put. So, so how are you going to convince us that that's indeed the case? What are the benchmarks? What are the symptoms well, that, I, that the patient is on life support? I'm smiling because uh, uh, Larry Summers, former Secretary of the Treasury, former President of Harvard University, there's an interesting anecdote in the first chapter of my book, uh, The Zero Marginal Cost Society, at when the dot-com bust happened in 2000-2001, uh, the Federal Reserve System of Kansas City, a very powerful part of the Federal Reserve System, they held a little meeting to discuss the future of the communication internet because they realized this was a new business model, a new economic model, uh, but they wanted to try to get a feel for w what it meant for the future of the economy. So Larry Summers uh, and Bradford DeLong, an economist at the University of California, gave the opening speech. And Larry Summers said, look, uh, this new internet communication revolution is going to be as significant as the advent of electricity in the early 20th century. It's going to connect us in very new ways. It's going to change the way we think about economic life. He said, the problem is this. Uh, we've always believed in economics that, uh, uh, that we need to reduce our marginal costs, put out cheaper products, win over market share, bring back profits to investors. And we've all, always believed in economic theory that the optimum economic state of existence is to sell at marginal cost. He said, we just never expected an, a, a technology revolution so extreme, is what he was saying, it's productivity, that they could reduce those marginal costs to near zero, making products nearly free, and as you say, ending the possibility of profits. So here's what he said. And in, in a way, sorry to interrupt, but in a way, that's, that's like the, paradox. the difference between it. the theory and practice, right? In, in, in theory, every all prices should diverge to marginal cost. But in, in reality, all entrepreneurs want to create a monopoly so that they can extract bigger and bigger profit margins. That's the paradox that I outlined in the first chapter of the book. They don't want to come to grips with what I'm saying here, in which is, in some ways, it's the ultimate triumph of capitalism. The invisible hand has been successful in the marketplace because it's continued to reduce marginal costs, to put out cheaper products, to win over consumers. And the ultimate triumph is it's now going to be able to sell goods and services at near zero marginal cost, making them free, which is the ultimate, ultimate triumph of the capitalist market. But that triumph also means the, the downfall of part of that system and the birth of a new system, the collaborative commons 
uh, as a successor. But let me say the capitalist market isn't going to disappear. We'll talk about this. It's going to become a partner alongside a collaborative commons. You're going to see a hybrid system, part capitalist market, part collaborative commons. To the extent that the capitalist market benefits the collaborative commons, it will also succeed. For example, Google, Twitter, and Facebook are commercial entities, but they created great social commons, allowing everyone else to use those collaborative commons to uh, share information goods at near zero marginal cost. So, but let me go back to, to, uh, to, to Larry Summers. What he said here was quite interesting in his speech. He said, we can't allow this to happen. We can't go to near zero marginal cost because then we can't bring uh, our uh, profits back to our investors. So we're going to have to favor temporary monopolies. This is the former Secretary of the Treasury, the former president of Harvard University, who's supposed to be the champion of the free market system, saying, look, this new technology revolution to near zero marginal cost means the only way we're going to be able to keep capitalism alive is to have monopolies to keep the, the price above marginal cost. Then he said something very revealing. He said, we don't know what the replacement paradigm is going to be to this system. We know that the competitive market doesn't work when you get to near zero marginal cost. We don't know what the replacement paradigm will be. The fact that the former Secretary of Treasury and President of Harvard University is suggesting a replacement paradigm because the technologies now suggest a whole new way of organizing economic life, that is extraordinary. It never got picked up by the wider public because this was a small meeting held by economists and some and business leaders. So what we have here is this. That, that's fascinating, but give me a little... I'm going to give you some examples. Excellent, excellent. I know you're anxious personally. Let me, let me give you an example of how this works. In the communication internet, we uh, in the communication internet, we now have hundreds of millions, even billions of people who have at one time or another produced some kind of information good. It could be a YouTube video or a news blog or a photograph they shared with each other or something and shared it on a collaborative commons in near zero like marginal Like me, cost. I'm actually a perfect example of that because I've created probably a couple hundred videos so far and I've shared them all for At near zero margin, you have fixed costs, yeah. but your marginal costs are I near zero. I actually have pretty substantial fixed costs on some right. occasions, but the, 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 the marginal cost is indeed near zero. Near zero. Yeah. Well, so what you have here is the way this infrastructure was developed is that um, uh, you had both profit-making organizations creating these collaborative commons and non-profit organizations creating the collaborative commons. And so you have two models here. Uh, I'm going to give you an example. Airbnb is a profit-making organization. Couchsurfing is a nonprofit organization. Both of them have very small fixed costs. They set up websites, and their marginal cost then of adding uh, rental units or homeowners to their site who want to rent out or lease uh, their homes or their, 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 their bedrooms is near zero. So uh, Within a few years, Couchsurfing and Airbnb have just devastated the brick-and-mortar conventional hotel industry. Uh, one of them did it by being a profit-making organization, uh, which is Airbnb. Airbnb, uh, for them, bringing on a renter uh, who's already paying their rent, and they're already paying the utilities, their fixed costs, so the marginal cost of someone who's a renter going up on Airbnb's site is near zero. And then, uh, since... Uh, since they're already paying their fixed costs, the marginal cost of leasing out their room or their couch to someone is very low, and they get a fee for it. Couchsurfing is a nonprofit model. 
that's created the same commons, where they have literally millions and millions and millions of people who are making available on their website their homes or their apartments for free and sharing it with each other on a vast collaborative commons. And the idea is I share mine and then I believe you will share yours when I want to use your place when I'm traveling. It's been at least as successful in terms of its outreach as the commercial model. So this shift to an Internet of Things platform for a third industrial revolution is a very hybrid system, part profit-making institutions, part nonprofit. I'll give you another example. Google and Facebook and Twitter versus Wikipedia. Google, Facebook, and Twitter created vast collaborative commons so that hundreds of millions of people could, uh, at near zero marginal cost, have access to the knowledge of the world with Google or could have access to each other through Facebook or could communicate in real time and gossip through Twitter. And these commercial entities have made money by advertising on the sites. But they provided a commons so everyone else can then share all sorts of information goods for nearly free, which had a devastating impact on some of the brick and mortar uh, industries like newspapers, magazines, book publishing, uh, uh, television, and the film industry. Now, Wikipedia, like Couchsurfing, was a nonprofit organization and, uh, in which hundreds of millions of people uh, at near zero marginal cost are putting bits of information and knowledge on this site, checking each other's accuracy. They created a massive uh, uh, encyclopedia of the human knowledge, all free at near zero marginal cost. And they have only small cost in maintaining their system in a nonprofit setting. So uh, there's going to be situations where there, the capitalist market will find value in aggregating the networks, providing the services. I'm going to give you two concrete examples in the physical world. The Internet of Things now allows us to go over that firewall from the virtual world of information goods at near zero marginal cost to the physical worlds of energy and manufactured products at near zero marginal cost. That's why it's an Internet of Things. So where we're seeing this is in renewable energy and 3D printing. Let me explain it and then talk about how profit versus nonprofit. We now have millions and millions of small players, small businesses, medium-sized enterprises, producer cooperatives, consumer cooperatives, farm families, homeowners, who are producing their own green electricity right now at near zero marginal cost. Literally millions and millions of early adopters, primarily in Europe. Let me ask you this though, uh, because some people would say the examples you give are great and they are real, but they are not necessarily a sign that capitalism is going away, but rather that capitalism is successful in the sense that it's turning everyone who has a house, for example, in Germany, in an energy power plant. Right, and therefore in an entrepreneur, and therefore in a small-time capitalist, perhaps. Well, there is some of that. There is something to that. Again, Airbnb does that. Couchsurfing is free. Uh, but let me let me use energy as a good example of what you're what you're what you're getting at here. Germany is a good example of what's happening. Germany is the most powerful capitalist country per capita in the world. Per capita, it's a powerhouse. 27% of its electricity is now generated by solar and wind. It's green electricity. They're heading to 35% green electricity by 2030. And on, uh, in June of this year, at the beginning of June, on one day, 75% of all the energy powering the entire electricity grid of Germany was coming from solar and wind. So much power 
that they have negative prices because the energy is nearly zero marginal cost. That's in one day alone. And what's interesting about it is who's producing the new power? It's not the big power companies. It's millions of small players. It could be farm families, consumers, homeowners, and they're coming together in cooperatives, producer cooperatives, consumer cooperatives, and they're installing technology for solar and wind, and then they are producing the energy at near zero marginal cost. Now, what's interesting about it, the technology is still somewhat pricey. Solar panels on your roof, wind turbines on your property, geothermal heat pumps. But these technologies are on an exponential curve, not unlike the exponential curve in computing. You know, in the early days of computing, IBM early on in the 50s said we'll need four or five computers. Yes. They're too expensive. They're millions of dollars. They did not anticipate the Intel computer chip. And what we've learned in the last 30 years is computers have gotten cheaper because of an exponential curve where we double the knowledge and half the cost every two years. Moore's and, law. Yeah, Moore's law. Now we got computers that a smart cell phone putting out in China for $25. That's from millions of dollars to $25 with much more power than the computers even 30 years ago. What's happening in renewable energy is similar. Uh, in, in solar, it's called Swanson's Law. Solar and wind have both been on a similar exponential curve to computer chips and computing in the last 20 years. A solar watt of electricity in 1970 cost $60 a watt to produce the electricity. Today, it's 66 cents a watt, and it's going down towards zero, just like computer chips. And wind is following an exponential curve, too. So even though the, the fixed costs are still there, it's getting cheaper and cheaper, but the marginal costs are what's interesting. The moment you install a solar panel or put in uh, a wind turbine or a geothermal heat pump, the energy is free. The sun flowing all across your roof is free. You just have to grab it. The wind coming across your property is free. You just have to capture it. The geothermal heat coming up from under the ground of your building is free. You just have to grab it. So in Germany now, we've got a million buildings, one million buildings that have been converted and they're producing their own power. Now, what's happened to the big power companies? Because this gets back to your issue of who's going to make money. We had four major global power companies that were giants there. EMBW, and I've worked with some of them. EMBW, uh, RWE, Vettel, and Eon. What's happened to them is what happened to the recording industry in seven years. These big, huge, powerful global companies have literally uh, been crippled by millions of small players who are moving together in cooperatives and laterally scaling their activity just like the kids did with music. So these big vertically integrated power companies can't compete with millions of small players who come together and create lateral economies and scale to share their power. So the vast majority of the power, way over 50% of the power coming into Germany now is small players, homeowners, small businesses, neighborhood associations. Now, how do the power companies make money? What I suggested to them years ago in my book, The Third Industrial Revolution, and now in the new book, The Zero Marginal Cost Society, is you've got to change your business model. There's, there are feed-in tariffs in 61 countries that allow people to get premium price now for selling renewable energy back to the grid. So right now we have millions of players producing their own green electricity. And 10 years from now, hundreds of millions of people are going to produce their own green electricity. And 20 years from now, perhaps a billion people will create their own green electricity on the same curve it's people that increasingly were able to move on to the internet and at lower marginal cost share information. 
So what we said to the power companies is your, your mission is you're going to sell less power. You can't compete with near zero marginal cost energy coming into that grid. So let all of us produce the power in our cooperatives. We sell it back to you in Germany. You run the energy internet because that's very technical. You aggregate the network. That requires a lot of technical expertise. And the way you'll make money is by selling as little electricity as you can sell. That's counterintuitive. And they say, how do we make money? We thought Bring we made efficiency into the system. You got it. So the way they do it is, I said, you set up partnerships with thousands of small, medium, and large companies and neighborhood associations. And you mine the big data coming through the Internet of Things to the communication internet, the energy internet, and the transport and logistics internet, one platform. You mine the big data, and then you uh, use analytics to create algorithms to help all your thousands of companies increase their efficiencies, uh, increase their productivity, reduce their marginal cost, and then they'll share their productivity back with the power and utility companies. And I say that there's much, much more money in selling less electricity and sharing the productivity gains by less energy and more zero marginal cost. And now that's the model now that some of the big power and utility companies in France are moving to ERDF, EDF. They're not leaving the old model. This is not overnight. This is a 40-year transition. So they want to be in two portfolios, centralized, distributed. The old fossil fuels at high cost, the new energies at near zero marginal cost. So it's a very complex long-term transition between a second and a third industrial revolution. And if the smart companies in the capitalist market will still be able to create enough margins by aggregating the networks and serving the networks. But they're not going to be the, arb the only arbiter of economic life. It's already changing. So you're the collaborative commons is there. You're proposing this, this fantastic hybrid model between the it's collaborative commons and the, the sort of the capitalist model, the yeah. traditional classic capitalist model. And you say it's already here, but of course you're referring to Europe. Right now we are here in Canada and as a Canadian watching our Canadian government, it appears to me that we as a country or as a government are bent on riding the second industrial revolution yeah. for as long as we can and mine the heck out of the tar sands. And I see almost no incentives towards alternative sources of energy such as wind and solar in Canada. And correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe with some exceptions in California, in the United States the picture is not that much different. No, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I'm very concerned about the U.S. and Canada because what I see here is the U.S. and Canada, which were leaders in the second industrial revolution, are becoming outliers in the third industrial revolution. And that is, history is passing them by very quickly. You know, the Brits led the first industrial revolution in the 19th century. The Americans, the U.S., led the second industrial revolution with Canada in the 20th century. Uh, we're seeing the European Union and now China moving aggressively to lead a third industrial revolution by developing an Internet of Things platform, bringing communication internet together with an energy internet and transport and logistics internet. And uh, the, it's kind of a devil's bargain because uh, Canada has tar sands. And the only reason we have tar sands competitive is because oil is now so expensive that these more difficult to extract uh, and more polluting energies are now commercially viable because of the price of oil is going up. I think they need a minimum of 70 or 80 dollars. It's between 66 and 80 dollars. If you get underneath yeah. 66 to 80 dollars, they're not even competitive. Yes. And remember, in 1973, oil was selling at 3 dollars a barrel. 
10 years ago, it was selling at $35 a barrel. Yeah. And so what's happened is the reason the global economy is stalled, it all depends on fossil fuels. And tar sands isn't even competitive until the oil price is, uh, is over $80 a barrel. So it's not a sunrise energy regime. It's a sunset regime. And in the U.S., we have shale gas. And the irony of shale gas is it's a bubble because the investors came into shale gas and they all invested in the shale deposits at the same time. These shale deposits have one sweet spot. It's a little sweet spot in each big shale deposit. and You milk it out in 18 months. So everyone invested at once. So all the milk, all that gas is coming out over an 18-month period. And so within four or five years, we have cheap gas now because everyone's milking those deposits. And all the studies by government show that by the late teens or 2020, the prices go back up. It's not a, a silver bullet. It's not a magic bullet. The problem is if the U.S. and Canada continue to stay in an old energy regime, they will not have the incentives to build out an Internet of Things platform which relies on distributed near zero marginal cost energy for your productivity and efficiency, and uh, they won't be able to plug and play a whole new business model. And 10 years lost is a huge loss. If the U.S. and Canada stay in the 20th century for 10 years, they will be left aside and you watch the European Union and China move. Let me give you a, a, a case in point. As you know, I helped develop, I was privileged to develop with the EU this third industrial revolution plan. It's our formal plan. Germany, I work with the chancellor and her government since she's came in, they're there. What surprised me was China. Uh, my book, The Third Industrial Revolution, came out there two years ago. It became the best-selling book in China, and I had nothing to do with it. The new premier, Premier Li, when he came into office uh, in, uh, last November, he put out his official biography, and he said, look, I'm a fan of Mr. Rifkin. I read his book, The Third Industrial Revolution, and he's informed the government to move on these, this entire uh, vision and platform for China. And then Wang Yang, who's now the vice premier, also endorsed the book. I was there on an official visit uh, with the government leadership last September, and 12 weeks after I was there, the Chinese government announced an $82 billion four-year commitment to lay out the beginnings of an energy internet and to bring together transport and logistics for an Internet of Things platform. That's a four-year commitment of $82 billion to move this. This is so far ahead of anything we're contemplating in the U.S. and Canada. So I think your question is well put. I'm very worried about the U.S. and Canada. The only thing I can say, maybe there's a silver lining, once the U.S. and Canada gets this, the entrepreneurial tradition in the U.S. and Canada is very strong. You know, we're, we're both a nation of immigrants. We're risk takers. We see a new story. We want to move on it. I'm hopeful that once we see what's happening in the European Union and China, we will join them and we can move very quickly, but we've got to get by this dependency on these old fossil fuels like tar sands and shale gas in the 20th century. Or we're going to be second tier countries in 20 years. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Good question. I'm glad you raised it, actually. Thank you. Uh, I wasn't sure a Canadian would raise that question. No, of course. Uh, I, at least from what I understand of being Canadian, because I became a Canadian by choice, is that we pride ourselves in having those discourses, those conversations, and there are no uh, inconvenient or inappropriate topics, especially when it comes to the future of our country. So, And, and I believe it's very important. 
And I'm particularly concerned about the fact that the manufacturing and especially the research and development and science foundation for our country has been at best left on the back burner, if not worse. And, and because everything's been invested in, in resource development, not only oil and gas, but also mm. forests yeah. and, and, and yeah. so on, I'm afraid that we would have what economists call, maybe we're already experiencing Dutch disease, which is to say that our currency has become mm. so expensive that our local manufacturing and local R&D just cannot compete with respect to the cost of other places in the world. Well, yeah, it's very dangerous to become a one-resource economy. Uh, we've seen this over and over again, and most recently now in Russia and now in Canada, yeah. to some extent the United States. Basically, we become a one-trick pony, and, and once that trick is out of fashion... Gone. Then the circus you're, you're is not over. in the driver's seat. The moment you become a one-resource economy, especially fossil fuels, which is maturing yes. and sunsetting, it's a death knell. Let me. You mentioned manufacturing. This is a good second example. It's not just renewable energy. This Internet of Things is spawning a new manufacturing model. It's called 3D printing. 3D printing has nothing to do with the second industrial revolution. So if Silicon Valley tries to plug 3D printing into a second industrial revolution infrastructure based on expensive fossil fuels and centralized communication, they won't get the productivity out of it. The 3D printing, we now have hundreds of thousands of hobbyists and thousands of small companies and startup companies with 3D printers. And they're using, they go up on the internet and they get open source free software to print out products. And they're using recycled material for the filament for the products at near zero marginal cost. They're using recycled plastic just garbage around the neighborhood. They're using recycled paper. They're using even gravel and sand is being melted down. So the, the, the material is near zero marginal cost. These aren't rare earths. And they're using a process of additive manufacturing where the software instructs this cheap recycled material to print out an entire physical product with movable parts and at near zero marginal cost after the fixed costs are paid. And then you're powering their 3D printers with their own renewable energy from their consumer, from their consumer cooperatives at near zero marginal cost. And within a few years, they're going to be able to drive those 3D printed products to market on an Internet of Things world with GPS guidance, driverless vehicles that are electric and fuel cell at near zero marginal cost. But you have to plug and play into an Internet of Things infrastructure to make this happen. That's the third industrial revolution. It's quite extraordinary. Now, in my country, President Obama wants every school to have a 3D printer in the next few years. I'm sure you're doing it in Canada, everywhere. But if you have a 3D printer and you're sitting in an old 20th century, second industrial revolution, communication, energy, and transport matrix, it doesn't do you any good. It doesn't spread. So let, let me ask you this, though. And that's, by the way, a, an audience uh, question. Do you foresee that perhaps that third industrial revolution would come either from Europe that is to say Germany and or China. Absolutely. It's coming from Germany. It's coming from Denmark as well, but uh, Germany is much more powerful. Uh, Germany is the most powerful economy in the world per capita. Watch Germany, watch China. Uh, both have embraced the five pillars uh, that I outlined for the third industrial revolution. Uh, let me just give you an anecdote about uh, Chancellor Merkel when I first met with her. Uh, the first meeting, first few weeks after government came into office, uh, she said, I like the Third Industrial Revolution for Germany. I said, why? She said, you need to know a little history about Germany. We're a federation of regions. 
This third industrial revolution, five pillars, is designed as an architecture to be distributed, collaborative, it favors peer production, so it allows everyone to be engaged. It fits a country where our regions all have to share power, uh, political power, also energy. I think Germany's already there. I've, I've worked with that government since the chancellors come in. Uh, uh, and I have to say that imagine in a few years from now when all the energy is near zero marginal cost. I mean, la this month, 75% of the energy in one day coming into that electricity again was near zero marginal cost solar and wind energy. Think about the productivity gains from everybody, from homeowners to businesses, when they can use energy to move their products, their logistics, their supply chain, and the energy component that goes into every step of the value chain is near zero marginal cost. That allows them that extreme productivity to create a new successful economic model and the old centralized, vertically integrated technologies of the second industrial revolution, those countries that stay there, they're just not going to be on the map here. Let me, let me ask you this, because we've been talking about the process of decentralization. Di I call it distributed. Or distributed. Because you have to share. It isn't, you're off. Let me, I'm glad you raised this, just for a second. Let me, let me give you a little more context, though, sure. because I want you to, to, to address a specific issue, and that's the issue of Bitcoin. Uh -huh. In other words, the Bitcoin innovation consists of two parts. One is the part that everybody sees, which is the currency, but the more interesting part is the platform, is the mm -hmm. decentralized uh, trust network that Bitcoin provides. So let me ask you, how, how does Bitcoin figure in your picture that you're yeah. painting for us here, or does it? It does. I have a chapter in the Zero Marginal Cost Society uh, 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 in which I explore at length how this new system is going to change our notion of uh, currencies. And just uh, the architecture of the Internet of Things, it favors small and medium-sized enterprises, and it favors a, a distributed form of economy. Let me, let me spend Horizontal a moment on Horizontal and lateral. Yeah, let me spend a little time on this. In the early chapters of the Zero Marginal Cost Society, I had to spend a lot of time on the first and second industrial revolution uh, so that we could have an understanding of, of how they were organized. Thomas Piketty has been in the news. He just wrote a book, Capital in the 21st Century. I read the book. It's quite French interesting. Economist. And this French economist pointed out that uh, there's been a growing disparity of income between the 1% and the 99% uh, in the history of the capitalist era. Uh, his, his data is interesting. I found it informative, but he never, it's kind of a tautology to say the capitalists then control the capital. We, we've known him. He's given us the proof. He's shown us income data, real estate and wealth data to show that the revenue has flowed up. Some of it's flowed horizontally, most of it's flowed up. But what he never did in the 600 pages is to describe why it happened. Again, every economic system in history has three components. A communication component to manage economic activity, and energy to, to allow us to power the economy, and a form of transport and logistics to move economic activity. If you know that, that, what that platform looks like, its architecture, it pretty well sets the framework for whether revenue will flow out or up. In the first and second industrial revolution, the reason capitalism has emerged, and he never explains this in his book, uh, Thomas Piketty, is we went from the locomotive, allowed us to go from little regional markets to national markets and continental markets because of the speed and the, and the uh, reliability of delivering goods and services. Building national railroad systems, I don't have to tell folks in Canada, 
I'm sitting here in a hotel room right now that was built by the Canadian Pacific Railroad. These big railroads required huge amounts of capital that families couldn't put together anymore. That's what started modern capitalism, that you had to have shareholders and create lots of capital to allow railroads to create national rail systems. But in order then to return their investment to their shareholders, they had to vertically integrate these railroads so that they could bring everything under one roof. So here's a perfect example. I'm sitting here in a hotel with you right now, and this hotel was built by the Canadian Pacific Railroad. They vertically integrated everything. Even the passengers were then, when they got to each city, they were then uh, getting rooms in the hotels owned by this train system. In the U.S., our, our railroad systems owned the steel yards that made the rails. They owned the coal that produced uh, the power. So when we went for the first and second industrial revolutions, 19th and 20th century, they required massive capital so that you could create national and continental markets. And then the only way you could create an efficient return on investment is vertically integrated organizations. Monopolies of scale, basically. Well, yes. And those economies of scale actually were more efficient because they allowed them to eliminate all the, uh, the uncompetitive middlemen and put out cheap products, put a lot of people to work, create a consumer culture. So revenue did flow to people at the bottom. Absolutely. We're all better off now than we were before the Industrial Revolution. But because of the pyramidal nature, the control system, these vertically integrated companies where control flowed from the top down across national markets, it was absolutely inevitable that more revenue would flow up to the top of the pyramid and not as much on the base. So here we are at the end of the second Industrial Revolution. And what do we got? We've got three out of the four biggest stockholding companies in the world are energy companies, BP, Dutch Shell, and Exxon Mobil. Underneath them, 10 banks and financial companies, which control 60% of the investment in the world. And underneath them, in each industry, four or five players in the auto industry, the electronics industry, that control most of each market. That's what we have at the end of the system. And, and 500 global companies account for, what, 70% of the GDP of the world. And the 85 richest human beings that have really been advantaged by this pyramidal system, the 85 richest human beings, we could put them in this room. Their combined wealth now equals the wealth of three and a half billion people, half the population of the world. That's amazing. We can do better than that. What I'm suggesting is this was, these vertically integrated companies were the most efficient ways to create economies of scale, return investment, and actually make a better world, not just for those on the top, but for everyone else. What's so, in, uh, what's so fascinating about the Internet of Things as a general purpose technology platform, its design, its architecture is not to be vertically integrated. Its very architecture is to be distributed, collaborative, and favor peer production in a way that millions of small players can come together, assuming that the, the technology stays network neutral, assuming the super internet like the internet is neutral, so everyone has equal access, no one's left behind, no one's discriminated against, a big if, because a lot of big companies, and I hope we talk about this, are going to want to monopolize it. But assuming we have network neutrality, it allows everyone in the world to access this internet of things and be able to mine big data with their own mobile technology and their own apps, just like the big boys at Google, create their own algorithms, and increase their productivity, reduce their marginal cost, and produce their own green electricity, their own 3D printed products, their own services, at near zero marginal cost. 
and eliminate all the middlemen of vertically integrated companies. They can laterally scale and create economies scaled by millions of small people, just eliminating all the middlemen and directly engaging each other. Look at Etsy. Etsy is the best model of this. You know Etsy? Yes. I, I, was, I got a call by Rob Kalin about three or four years ago uh, out of nowhere. He said, I'm Rob Kalin. I formed Etsy. Uh, you know, uh, I would love to talk to you about where things head. And I said, look, you, I said, you've done enough. You've done something brilliant. He and Matt Station, a friend of his, they were uh, uh, buddies at NYU. They drop out of school. They create Etsy. And now here we have this little website that's now global, 950,000, almost a million small businesses advertising from all over the world on the website free. 60 million consumers go on that website every month. They shop around. They find... Uh, a, a small manufacturer that they like, they buy a product and Etsy gets a tiny fee. That's how it stays commercially viable. Just enough so it can continue its operations. It's created a vast collaborative commons, which is both you know commercial goods, but also a collaborative commons where people can engage and eliminate all the middlemen of vertically integrated global companies. So what I'm saying here is that Fortune 500 companies look very powerful. They're huge, they're vertically integrated. But what we've seen is when millions of small players come together in these collaborative peer-to-peer systems, it devastates the big players, the recording industry, newspaper and publishing industries, now the big global energy players, and pretty soon global manufacturers are going to find the same fate. It's inevitable because it's a better system. But going back to Bitcoin, how is that fit Here's Bitcoin. What's interesting about the Internet of Things is Parallel to that, we're uh, seeing new kinds of currency emerge. Uh, we're seeing social currencies emerge, not just Bitcoin. We have thousands now of social currencies uh, where people are bypassing official currencies and they're exchanging services and goods with each other uh, by getting credit. So if I perform a service, for example, let's say I'm an accountant and I perform a service and do your accounting, that gives me a certain number of hours of credit and then I can use that in a time bank, social currencies, so I can then get maybe a, a product that someone else produced sent to me. You're bypassing currencies altogether. And this allows you at near zero marginal cost to use these currencies on the Internet. And you're totally fungible, so you're, you're, the base of who you can f share services with is huge. But you're not involved with official currencies. Currencies like Bitcoin, which are commercial in nature, there's likely going to be thousands of these currencies. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just uh, we are seeing a shift in power. Let me, let me just stop for a moment. I'm a pretty old guy. I'm not even a baby boomer. I'm a World War II baby. And my generation grew up to believe that power is always pyramidal. It's always vertically integrated. It, that's what power is. There's a top, top down, and it, and it goes down, and it's a pyramid. And so there's no other way to define power. So when someone my age hears about peer-to-peer -peer lateral power, we think it's an oxymoron. How can you have peer-to-peer -peer lateral power? Power is always top-down. But for every young person, and I would say for me, a young person is anyone under 40, that grew up on the Internet, they judge power completely differently. They don't talk about right versus left and capitalism versus socialism. It isn't even part of their vocabulary. When a young person that grew up on the Internet judges power at any level. They ask, is this institutional power that's being used, whether it's a government, a political party, a small business, a big business, NGO. or a school system, an NGO, 
Is this power centralized, top-down, patriarchal, and closed, proprietary? Or is this power this institution is using, is the power distributed, collaborative, peer-producing, and does it encourage lateral economies of scale, lateral power? And you're, you're nodding because you're, of course, part of this revolution. Everyone that's part of this revolution understands that lateral power is power, whether it's file-sharing music, YouTube videos, now renewable energy, and, and already 3D printed products. It's an economic revolution. It's really a fundamental shift in the way we think. It's going to take place over 40 years, two generations, and the capitalist market is not going to disappear. But it's going to have another player, sometimes flourishing uh, at, in a cooperative way, sometimes competing. Mr. Rifkin, time is advancing, and I would like to move I'm on. I'm enjoying to, it, so please. We're getting stuff out we've never gotten out before. So Fantastic. Uh, and, and that's actually the whole point of, of, of my sort of line of questions, to bring in new things to into the conversation that you have started with your book. So the last thing that I want to ask specifically about the book before we move on, however, is this. What's the biggest misconception that so far you have struggled with and that you want to kind of clarify once and for all? Well, let me say, I, I was very concerned when I put this book out, of course, you know, uh, about the reaction was, would be. I was very heartened that Fortune, Forbes, and Financial Times all did really serious, long reviews, and they understood the various levels of discussion and said, yeah, this is something we really have to consider. This is a, this is, this book has brought together the, the components of something that's emerging, that's starting to look like a new economic system. So I was very heartened that we had some serious, deep reviews. Uh, in terms of the misconception, I think mostly it's a surprise to people rather than a misconception. I think what's happened as this book's come out, this zero marginal cost has sort of hit everybody like this. And once you see it, you say, oh yeah, that does sort of exist everywhere. We have been doing this. It's been a shock to the economics profession, and we've had silence among the economists so far. But in the business community, you know, I chair a global uh, a consulting company called Third Industrial Revolution uh, Consulting. We have logistics companies, transport, electronics companies, IT, some of the greatest architectural firms, and we are actually laying out the Internet of Things platform for Third Industrial Revolution in the real world in regions around the world. We're just doing uh, northern industrial France right now, the North Calais area. We're just about to enter into relationships in China. Uh, uh, I participated in Kazakhstan. We just are beginning to lay out a $3.5 billion uh, economic development zone there that'll be an Internet of Things third industrial revolution, on and on and on. These global companies are beginning to realize that the old mission is one-off products that you sell in a market. The new mission is aggregating networks that can allow an Internet of Things to flourish and the collaborative commons to develop. To the extent that they can help lay out that infrastructure over 40 years, that Internet of Things platform, allow a third industrial revolution to develop uh, and create the conditions for an extreme productivity and a more zero marginal cost society, everybody benefits and there'll be a return to them. This kind of reminds me to Seth Godin's book, uh, I think it's called Tribes. Uh, where he right. tribes, yeah. Where he explains about uh, the need to, if you want to be successful at anything, you have to create a tribe, 
You have no. to create a community and become a leader. And so that's why I want to ask you, what's your biggest dream with, with this and, or, and all your other books? What's the perfect case scenario? Is it to, the way I understand it, to create a community and put impetus behind the plan of action that you're proposing and sort of start implementing it? Or is it something even bigger than that? I think that, um, I think that our species is in real trouble. I mean, really serious, serious condition. It's hard to talk about because it either brings a smile or... My other question was, what's your biggest fear? And I'm afraid you're addressing well, that Well, I think right my... my I, here's, what I, here's what I think. So let's put them all both you know, together then. I've been a social activist for 45 years. Uh, and um, I must say that at this point in 2014, my concern is whether the human race has got a future on this planet. We're in really serious trouble. You know, it's not just that we have a global economic crisis. We've had two industrial revolutions in the 19th and 20th century. And we basically built these industrial revolutions on digging up the burial grounds of the Carboniferous Age. This whole civilization is made out of carbon. So we grow our food and fertilizers and pesticides that are petrochemicals. Our construction materials are made out of fossil fuels. Most of our pharmaceutical products are fossil fuel based. Our synthetic fiber, our power, transport, heat, and light. So we've created a great short-lived civilization by digging up the burial grounds of the Carboniferous Age. But now what's happened is in building that civilization, the energy we use resulted in massive amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere and industrial-based methane and nitrous oxide. And now we're in real-time climate change. Because of the, the energies, the communication system, and the logistics and transport systems that we set up, while lots of people benefited in the 19th and 20th century, and we increased the quality of life for a good portion of the human race, now the future of the human race is in doubt. We're in real-time climate change, and this is what I'd like to say to everybody that's listening. The terrifying thing about climate change that is not well understood, it changes the hydrological cycle of the Earth, the water cycle. We're the watery planet. When we go to other planets with satellite probes, we want to say, we want to know, is there water? No water, we're not interested. Our ecosystems on this planet have developed over millions of years based on certain uh, dependable water regimes. For every one degree that the temperature goes up on this planet from climate change, from CO2, methane, nitrous oxide release, for every one degree the temperature goes up, the atmosphere is absorbing 7% more precipitation from the ground. The heat sucks up that precipitation so you get more concentrated precipitation and more violent water events. We're getting more extreme snows in the winter. We're getting more dramatic spring flooding all over the world. We're getting more prolonged summer droughts everywhere. We're getting more category three, four, and five hurricanes, typhoons, tsunamis. That's devastating agriculture and infrastructure in real time. And we're only in 2014 and the feedback loops are now escalating. So our scientists tell us that we are in the sixth extinction event of life on this planet right now. That's not challengeable. We can measure it. We've had five waves of mass extinction on Earth in 450 million years, five wipeouts. And every time we had a wipeout, the chemistry of the planet shifted. There was a turning point. The, bio, the chemistry shifted, die out. On the average, 10 million years to recover the biodiversity losses every time. We're in the sixth extinction event. Our scientists tell us we could lose over 70% of all the forms of life on Earth by the end of this century. So many of these life forms have been here for millions of years. We are not grasping this. 
We're the youngest species. We're the babies here in, 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 on planet. Anatomically modern humans have been here 175,000 years. And here's what my message is. There's no guarantee for our species. We are asleep. 99.5% of all the species of life that have ever been on this planet have come and gone. 99.5% have come and gone. I think that this next so quarter... should we be different? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. The only way we can be different is we're smart, we're intelligent, and we can manage our lives on this planet. We mismanage, now we can learn to manage them. The Internet of Things provides a technology platform to connect the human race so we begin to think as a single family. But now we have to shift consciousness. It's not just the technology. We have to shift our consciousness from geopolitics to biosphere consciousness if we have any hope of moving to this more sustainable world that I'm talking about. My fear is also my hope. I think that uh, we're in a situation where we have to rethink uh, what our role is as a species on this planet. That means we're going to have to start thinking as a human family. We're going to have to think as one species that's responsible not only for each other, but our fellow creatures in the planet we live in. What's interesting about the Internet of Things is it provides a nervous system so that everyone can be in touch with and directly engage with each other in both communication and their source of power and energy and their mobility and logistics. So we can begin to think as an extended human family. You know, it's amazing that the, the uh, World Wide Web went online in 1990. And here we are in 2014, and we've got a billion plus people, a couple billion people, with just in two seconds, they can go on Google and get the knowledge of the world they need and share with each other at near zero marginal cost. We've got uh, 650 million people on Twitter gossiping with each other every day. We've got over a billion plus people on Facebook, one out of every six human beings, and the largest human family album in history. So this is all good, good news. But what I would say is this, the, the technology is not enough. It is not enough to have an Internet of Things platform for a third industrial revolution to connect the human race. If we don't change human thinking, the human narrative, human consciousness, so that it's compatible with the technological ability that we now have, we're going to be lost. In other words, if all this technology ends up being monopolized by a few players, it isn't open and neutral, it doesn't help us uh, become more sophisticated in how we handle our lives with each other, then it's for naught. We need to move to biosphere consciousness, and that's what this new third industrial revolution technology allows. The biosphere is a scientific term. It's actually the sheath that extends from the stratosphere to the ocean depths where all living beings and all chemical processes interact in a very complex choreography to maintain life on the planet. My hope is, and this is where I'm somewhat hopeful, I, you know, I'm not a techno-optimist, I'm not a utopian, I believe that we're, you know, we're, we're not a perfect creature and we try to struggle and empathize with each other and, and root for each other to try and flourish on this planet as best we can. But my hope is I'm seeing 14, 15 year old kids come home from school with biosphere consciousness. They're saying to their parents, why are you using so much water when we, when we shower and waste the water? Or why is the TV on? We're not using that TV. The electricity is being wasted. Uh, and here's the one I particularly like. Or why are we not car sharing? Why do we have two cars and they're just sitting there? The one I particularly like is 14-year-old kids, 15-year-old kids coming home from school. And they're saying, why is the hamburger on my plate? They're connecting the dots. They realize they're saying, did this hamburger come from a rainforest? Did they have to 
raise the tree canopy, destroy the trees to get two inches of topsoil to graze the cow for my burger. And the kids realize that when the tree canopy is raised to graze the cow, there's rare species of animals and plants that only live in that tree canopy, they become extinct. And then the kids know enough to know that the trees absorb CO2. So if the trees are destroyed in the rainforest for the soil to graze the cow for their burger, there's no longer trees absorbing CO2. That means the temperature of the planet's going up and some farmer is facing floods and droughts and she can't feed her family because of climate change, because of the hamburger. So what these kids are learning, and this is a big shift in narrative, in consciousness, they're actually learning that in a biosphere, everything is interconnected to everything else, that everything we do all day long, whatever we do, intimately impacts the well-being of another family, another creature, or part of the ecosystems of the earth. So our individual well-being is only secured to the extent that every, all the well-being of the planet we live in is secured. It's our indivisible community. The Internet of Things platform, the third industrial revolution, allows us to connect the human race and our natural world so that we can engage it directly. But unless we have a shift to biosphere consciousness and take responsibility for our species and our fellow creatures on this planet, the technology will be for naught. Last point on this. What this, what this third industrial revolution allows us to do, this Internet of Things and this zero marginal cost society, is moved to extreme sustainability in a circular economy. Zero marginal cost is extreme productivity. Extreme productivity means that you can use the minimum input of labor, energy, capital, and resources and optimize your output. So a near zero marginal cost world is the ultimate metric for sustainability. To the extent that we can minimize the input of labor, energy, resources, etc., and still optimize the output at near zero marginal cost, that's extreme sustainability. Then, if everything we produce at near zero marginal cost is shared on a collaborative commons over and over and over, our homes, our cars, the clothes that we use are shared with others, our tools and toys, so everything we do produce, our 3D printed products is shared over and over and over, so it never goes to the landfill across this Internet of Things platform, we create a circular economy, a environmentally efficient economy, a sustainable economy. In the process, we democratize economic life. Everybody becomes empowered, but their empowerment relies on being embedded in, with everyone else in these global networks where we benefit each other, we benefit our species, we benefit our fellow creatures, we benefit the planet we live in. So I think that's the agenda. I'm guardedly hopeful, I'm not naive. I think this is a challenge. If I were betting, I'd say this is an uphill battle. But on the other hand, what's our alternative? To stay in the 20th century in old energies, old technologies, and a system that's dysfunctional in which a handful in the top benefit, the rest suffer, and now a species facing climate change? That's not a viable alternative. So I think we need a commitment now to be on page, the human race, and get on with the task of trying to save the planet restore the health of the ecosystems, create a more ecologically just world that we can all live in. That's the legacy we should leave for our children, our grandchildren, and all the creatures not yet here. Let them enjoy this planet. Let them flourish on this planet. Our responsibility now is to heal that planet. And that's why I do what I do. So, yeah, you kind of preempted my question. Because, Sorry. Because I was going to ask you, how do you see yourself and the work that you do within that whole process? 
I, in other words, if you were to, to explain to us or share with us, if I may dare ask so, the mission, your mission. I think, you know, I didn't plan any of this. I have to tell you that <laughs> I would never have imagined in high school or college that I would be doing what I'm doing today. It just, it happened. I became a social activist in the 1960s. Uh, I was involved in civil rights. I was involved in uh, anti-Vietnam War efforts. One thing led to another. I, I, I didn't really have a career. I was really a social activist. And what I realized early on is that my activism would not be effective in addressing the questions of justice and environmental integrity unless I could actually think out the issues myself. That's why I started writing books, theory and practice. I realized I had to spend reflective time trying to understand myself uh, what was going on in this world. Why is it not, uh, why is this world not more just, more sustainable, and more livable? And so the books across these last 40 years have been an attempt to try to spend some reflective time in, in trying to think it out for myself. And then each of the books is designed to go to practice and then say, how can we implement some of these, these ideas in the real world and try to make uh, a situation where we can transform the world we live in? It's a very tough challenge. It's been very rewarding. I can't say that it hasn't been frustrating. It has as well. And uh, there are millions of other people who do the same thing. There are millions of people on this planet. Uh, they are social activists or they have jobs and they're spending time when they're not working and volunteering activity and a whole range of... Um, Let me throw in an audience question here, speaking yeah. of others doing the same thing. William Bulk asks, has Mr. Rifkin heard the concept of resource-based economy? And if so, what does he think about the idea? as an alternative to capitalism. I've never really liked the word resource because the moment we reduce uh, everything on this planet to a resource, it has a utilitarian value. And it becomes simply material for our use so that we can find some gain. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been the problem in the environmental movement. The environmental movement has been split between those who want to preserve, quote, the resources for our utilitarian purposes. And then another part of the environmental movement that says, no, uh, this planet, has intrinsic value, not just use value for human beings. This planet's not just here for our species, it's here for all the other forms of life that cohabit this planet with us. So the moment we think of everything else on this planet as a resource, we, um, we rob everything of its intrinsic value and it simply becomes material for manipulation, for gain in the market, or for personal gain. So I, I don't like the word resource uh, or the word asset. Uh, what we have to do is think about our relationship to the intrinsic value of nature. We're part of it. We're not separate from it. Our well-being depends on our honoring and respecting the intrinsic value of all the other forms of life on this planet and the environment that allows us to nurture life. And going beyond the semantical difference, though, are you familiar with the ideas of Jacques Resco and um, perhaps uh, the Zeitgeist movement? Well, tell me. Well, <laughs> you put me very well on the spot here. But basically the idea is that, if I may say so, and, and that's oversimplifying it, is to replace capitalism with a resource-based economy, to remove the monetary system altogether, to remove the need of money. And it's, it's very hard to oversimplify it in the very I understand what you're saying. Have, but basically replace it with a smart, intelligent, self-sustaining, centralized 
computerized system. Centralized? Yeah, centralized in the sense that there is a smart computer in the sense of in charge of similar to the Internet of Things, which gets all the necessary data and directs the logistics as you described. Well, see, now, I would be very opposed to a centralized computer brain managing the system. What's so great about the Internet, and Berners-Lee is to be credited with the World Wide Web, he said, let's build out an architecture that's designed to be stupid at the center, yeah. so that on the margins, everybody can use their own creativity and intelligence, directly engage each other, economies of scale, lateral networks, and be creative and come together and collaborate in new ways and to share their creativity, their talents, and their life. Uh, had he tried to create a, a web that was centralized, we would never have had the collaborative commons that's emerged. What, what we're realizing is the planet is a, is, uh, is a system, but it's not centralized. This planet is not centralized. Yeah. This planet operates because all of the life forces that have evolved, along with the chemistry of the planet, all have a role to play, and their synergisms and their symbiotic relationships together maintain the whole community. It's a community of life in a biosphere environment. So the, to the extent that the Internet of Things stays neutral so that everybody can be, become involved and engaged as a family, one species, it will succeed. To the extent that global companies try to monopolize the pipes and uh, control the actual infrastructure, it will fail. Uh, and so I am concerned about monopolies. You know, I spent a lot of time in the book yes, saying that um, you know, now network neutrality is, is responsible for creating the collaborative commons uh, so that no one's discriminated, no one's left behind, everyone's treated equally. Now, the Internet of Things is emerging, which moves to the entire economy, and lo and behold, the telecom companies, the cable companies, the power and utility companies say, well, we own the pipes. They're we want to be able to discriminate, discriminate. Yes. charge different prices, uh, maybe own some of the property, use it for our purposes. So they're already trying to undermine network neutrality. And early this year, there was a bad omen. The U.S. Supreme Court, by five to four, and you can imagine the justices, how they lined up, they overrode network neutrality, which is a central protocol of the federal communication system's oversight of the Internet. That is a very dangerous precedent. On the other hand, in Europe, at the EU, there are attempts to keep that system open and neutral. It's not just the, the telecom and cable companies and utility companies I love Google. I use it every day. Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, we all use them. And to their credit, these are commercial operations that have created great collaborative commons that allow the rest of us to share information goods and near zero marginal cost in democratized communication. But if the price to be paid is that these companies then take the data we're using uh, without our permission and create global monopolies, then we've lost not just the spirit, but the actual architecture uh, of the Internet, which has actually made it successful. Uh, so uh, I think that we're reaching a point, you know, Google, 60 billion queries a day, is it? Um, I think 6 billion. I'm sorry, 6 billion. Yeah. Google gets 6 billion queries a day. Uh, I love Google. I use it all the time. Uh, but they now control two-thirds of the research engine market in the U.S. and over 90% of the research engine market in Europe. And they're making $50 billion. They're starting to look like a global social utility monopoly. Facebook now, uh, one out of every six persons on the planet is using Facebook. The good news, it's creating a, a human family. 
that we can all interconnect. On the other hand, the data that's going into that system is used by Facebook for its, its own commercial ends and it's starting to look like a global monopoly. Same with Twitter. Amazon, I use Amazon. But now Amazon, one out of every three searches for new products starts on Amazon. They have a huge potential to globalize commercial traffic. Uh, same with eBay. So as we go on and on, we're beginning to see a handful of players that have been very responsible for creating these great collaborative commons that allow us to engage in near zero marginal cost and sharing information, but uh, there may be a price to be paid if they become monopolies and can control all that information and begin to end network neutrality. So we don't want to throw out all the good work, uh, but we want to work with these commercial systems that have created the collaborative commons. There needs to be some form of regulation. They need to be treated as some form of global utilities because they provide a service for everybody so that we all win here. Uh, and we have to also make sure that the, the Internet of Things is open to the social commons, the non-for-profit community, because that's the growing community on the collaborative commons. Much of the economic activity on this planet is now taking place in the civil society. It's free. Mm -hmm. It's people producing and sharing things for each other. That's called the nonprofit sector, the social commons, the civil society. So these great collaborative commons are bringing the civil society, the not-for-profit sector, out of the shadows. They're now becoming a potential dominant economic paradigm and the market, capitalist market is becoming a partner. I like the idea of more of a mixed system here so it can balance each other out. So these are very heady questions that have to be addressed. The zero marginal cost society is a first effort on my part to sort of throw out some ideas and a framework of where we're going and then invite a global conversation like you and I are having now. Let's flush this out. Let's see where we're going. Let's be responsible for our journey and not let things happen to us. Let's make things happen because we're engaged in the process, all of us. Yeah, I would like to, to say that I personally enjoyed the book very much and I think it's a fantastic starting point for that conversation and he has actually very good, very worthy ideas and suggestions that are worth exploring and testing out in reality and, and see how they uh, pan out. But um, time is unfortunately advancing very much. So let me ask you the last three questions. So the first one is, my show is called Singularity One on One. So I want to see if there's any space in this realm that we've been talking about where for artificial intelligence. Where does it fit? Does it fit and how is it changing anything or at all? Well, it's changing labor for sure. I wrote a book called The End of Work in 1995, which galvanized the debate on the future of employment in an automated world. Uh, we now have workerless factories. We have virtual retailing, eliminating lots of jobs in physical retail. Uh, we have, uh, not only are we eliminating blue collar and factory workers, we're eliminating white collar workers because of analyt analytics, the ability to create algorithms uh, that can, uh, uh, and robotics that can be smart, intelligent, cheaper and more efficient than human beings. So it used to be we thought, well, you know, if if people lose their jobs in the factory, we retrain them for white collar and service work. Now they're both automating. And so we've always, we still continue to say, well, that's true, but now the new jobs are in the knowledge industry, the conceptual jobs. I mean, that leaves aside whether everyone in the human race can do those jobs. But now the knowledge workers are being quickly eliminated by artificial intelligence, uh, analytics, algorithms, robotics. We don't need all the lawyers or the radiologists or the accountants. 
they are really being eliminated as quickly as the factory workers were in the last decade and the white collar and service workers. We are moving to near zero marginal labor cost. George Maynard Keynes in the Depression wrote a great little essay. He yeah. scribbled off an essay to his great-grandchildren. One of my favorite readings in undergrad school. Yeah. So he writes this little essay to his grandchildren saying, you know, it's 1930, everybody is depressed because of the Depression and thinks it's going to get worse because that was the beginning of technology actually replacing human labor. So he said, you're going to hear a new term called technology displacement, technology unemployment. He says people are frightened of this term, but actually this could be our liberation as a species because it's true that technology is replacing workers faster than we can find new opportunities for them. But he said, this may liberate the human race and my grandchildren's generation because let the technology, the automated technology do the heavy lifting, cheaper, more efficiently, so we can free human beings. Our minds are much more capable of a much more transcendent journey than just attending machines on a factory floor or being in a cubicle in an office. That's a terrible waste of human value is what he was suggesting. He said maybe our grandchildren's generation will grow up in a world, an automated world, where they can get on with the task of using their mind to create a sense of social capital, a sense of community, and begin to explore the human journey and our reason for being on this planet in the universe. Now that may be, end up to be his most poignant uh, projection uh, and forecast. Uh, what, I, what we're beginning to see happening is as the marketplace becomes more automated, and it's inevitable it's going to happen, uh, it's happening in China, it's it happening in America, happening it's happening everywhere, yes. we have one last wave of mass wage labor. So we've got a silver lining that can give us a little bit of a breathing space for 40 years. There's one more last surge of mass wage labor and salary labor left to build out the Internet of Things platform, the infrastructure for a third industrial revolution. It's a last revolution. hurrah, man. It's, the a last hurrah. it's a last <laughs> hurrah, but it will require hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. We have to transform the entire energy of the world from fossil fuels to renewable energies. That's very labor intensive. We have to put in, change the whole building structure of the world so every building is a micro power plant. We have to change the electricity grid so it's a distributed internet. We have to change transport so we have an automated driverless transport system. Laying down that infrastructure is hundreds of millions of jobs, thousands of new business opportunities. But as it phases in, this Internet of Things platform for a third industrial revolution is smart. It's intelligent. It can learn by its errors. It can feed back and reprogram itself with a small supervisory workforces. So the question is then what happens? We're seeing already what's happening. The employment is already migrating. As people become unemployed in the automated and pretty soon artificial intelligence marketplace, employment's migrating en masse already to the social commons, the collaborative commons, the not-for-profit sector. This is a sector where we create social capital. Social capital, not machines. Machines can't create social capital. So our health institutions, educational institutions, sports, arts, environmental, cultural institutions, this requires humans engaged in deep play, not deep work so we can create our sense of meaning as a species. And economists basically ignore this system because it creates social capital, not market capital, but it's a big revenue generator, 2.2 trillion in revenue in 40 countries. And what's interesting is this sector has been growing at 42% in revenue. GDP is growing at 16% for the last 20 years. So you see where it's headed. And where the big change is is employment. This is a faster growing employment sector than market employment. 
In the US, Canada, and the UK, it's over 10% of the employment, and it's growing. So I think we're gonna see more and more young people migrate to this social commons for employment because they wanna be social entrepreneurs. They wanna use their minds. They, they want something that's more uh, meaningful to them in their life than just sitting, managing a machine, or managing an office. So I think that by 2050, this, if this would be my, my thought, if only part of what I'm saying turns out to be, to happen. We could in 2050 have our grandchildren's generation look back on the 20th century with the same repulsion that we look back on serfdom and slavery when we said, what a terrible waste of human value. They may look back in 2050 to the 20th century and early 21st century and say, my great grandparents and grandparents came to toil by the sweat of their brow to make a living. That's right. And, <laughs> and these kids are going to be living and growing up in an automated world in 2050 where they can have deep play, not toil and work, and advance social capital and create a sense of our journey on this planet. And the human mind is so richer than we use it, these kids are going to think that their great-grandparents had a terrible existence where their whole value was just being a human machine attending other machines to create material wealth. If the collaborative commons can help us address in part or in whole the technological unemployment and we live to that such a fantastic outcome, that would be great. But my question was pertaining a little bit further beyond that. What if machines replace not only our labor but us Altogether. I mean, There's Space Odyssey 2001 held the computer. That's one version, absolutely. There's uh, institutions such as, for example, MIRI, Machine Intelligence Research yeah. Institute. There's books such as The Final Invention, most recently I interviewed uh, James Barrett, and a number of others which foresee basically that there's a very good chance that humanity is destined or likely, if not destined, likely to go the way of the dinosaur and we are simply going to be replaced by machines, which are the well, natural next step of evolution. Uh, I wouldn't hold my breath. I'll tell you why. Let's go back to Star Trek. You had two, two main characters there, Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock. Mr. Spock, uh, in a sense, was a sophisticated machine. And it was very logical. Illogical. His mind worked by analytics. He created algorithms. It was all rational and logical. But whenever there was a crisis, it turned out that Captain Kirk's emotional empathic regard actually kind of saved the day, although he had help from Mr. Spock. But it was always a human dimension. What I'm saying is this. I wrote a book called The Empathic Civilization. This is uh, the first in these three book series. The first was The Empathic Civilization. The second is the Third Industrial Revolution book, and the third is the Zero Marginal Cost Society. The first book was essential for me to grasp what is the human uh, nature? What is human nature? Mm -hmm. We used to think during the Enlightenment that human nature, that we were basically, we're born, and when we're born, we seek to be autonomous agents that seek our self-interest in the marketplace, and then later generation economists said we act as rational beings who calculate Utility our utility value so we can maximize our benefits. All the way up to today, that's what a lot of business schools like the University of Chicago still teach. What we're learning at the cutting edge of evolutionary biology and cognitive science, and cognitive neuroscience, is that human beings actually are born and in their neural circuitry, we're the most social creature on the earth, we have the biggest neocortex, the worst thing you can do is ostracize a person. We don't seek autonomy. That would be death. That would be ostracization. We seek engagement, companionship, and why? We're learning that human beings, and I suspect all other mammals that nurse their young, 
we are, our neural circuitry is actually designed to express empathic distress. We have, uh, we have located mirror neurons uh, that allow us to empathize with another as if they were ourselves. For example, if a spider goes up your arm and I'm watching it, I'll get a creepy feeling inside my neural circuitry. It isn't up here. And that's because my circuitry is responding in the same way as if it were me. Or if you puncture yourself and bleed, I'll wince. Crocodiles don't do that. Other mammals, there's some other mammals that we think do. But we are actually designed in our neural circuitry for empathic distress. And the whole evolution of the human race is the extension of that empathic distress to wider, more fictional families. Forager gathers way back at the beginning of our history as human beings. Our empathic distress only extended to blood ties. We empathize, we experience the other as if they were ourselves, if they were in our immediate family. When we went to the great hydraulic civilizations, where more people came together in bigger units, we created theological consciousness. We went from mythological to theological thinking, and people started to affiliate in bigger families called religious identity. So in first century Rome, all early Christians who converted kissed each other and called each other brother and sister, which was bizarre, but these larger civilizations required that we stretch our empathic regard from blood ties to religious ties. You go all the way to the 19th century, the nation state, first industrial revolution, we extended our empathic regard to our fellow countrymen. So all French people think they're French now and empathize as French people. All Germans empathize with Germans. So today we're on another cusp where we can begin to extend that empathic sensibility to the human race as our family, our fellow creatures as our family, the planets, biosphere as our community, the, if we get there. But the idea is what if artificial intelligence doesn't grant us such empathy? But that, that's why I'm getting this point. I don't think artificial intelligence there'll never be a place where artificial intelligence can pass the Turing test. This is something I've always wanted to talk about. You know the Turing test? Absolutely, yes. And I've always marveled at all of these masters of the universe in the scientific community talk about the Turing test and we'll pass. They can't do it. Machines cannot empathize. And here's why. Empathy is a very unique quality and you have to be alive to experience it because if I empathize with you, what I'm doing is I'm experiencing your joy, your pleasure, your uh, fears, uh, uh, your dangers, uh, as if I were experiencing it myself. Empathy it has with it the, the uh, smell of death and the celebration of life. So if I empathize with you or a fellow creature that's, that's suffering, I can feel their attempt to flourish and the danger they're in or the joy they're feeling and I my compassion is rooting for them. In other words, I, I know that every other human I'm interacting with or every other creature has a one and only life like mine. Every moment is precarious. Nothing can be relived. And their ability to flourish is very limited in time and space. So if I'm experiencing your joy or your fears or your pleasures or your disgust, I'm really smelling that one day you will cease to be here like me. And in a compassion, I'm rooting for you to flourish to the full extent of your one and only time here as if I were myself. This, so an empathic world is never a utopia. I'm always amazed when people think, when they read The Empathic Civilization and Mr. Rifkin's talking about utopia, there's no, there's no empathy in heaven. If people are planning on going there, there is no heaven, uh, no empathy in heaven. There's no empathy in perfect utopias because there's no suffering, there's no mortality. There is no one and only life. And so if machines, which are basically immortal, they don't have an actual one and only life, 
They can't empathize with the suffering of others and root for their ability to flourish in their one and only moment here. It'll never pass the Turing test because the Turing test should be based on one's empathic regard. Empathy is the way we actually think. Empathy is not just emotions. Empathy is the way we actually experience the others ourselves so we can make connections and we can see the world as part of our common framework. So the good news, I guess, is empathy, I do believe, has evolved over history to larger fictional families. For sure, there are still people living with just blood tie empathy. There are some parts of the world still living in tribal empathy. There are some living in just religious empathy. They only empathize with people in their own religion. There are some that are living and empathizing only with uh, national loyalties. But there's a whole younger generation now on this emerging Internet of Things platform, this third industrial revolution, they're beginning to empathize with their fellow human beings as one species, and they're starting, just starting to begin to empathize with our fellow creatures as, as worthy of being here and flourishing on this planet too. So I'm guardedly hopeful, not naive. I would like to see us move in this direction. I hope that's the course we take. Mr. Rifkin, there's a lot of things that I find that uh, I would like to challenge you on, the ideas that you just mentioned. But unfortunately, we're completely out of time. So I may actually use that as an excuse for an interview sometime down the road. I, I, I would love to do it. But in, and, and that'd be fantastic. I appreciate it. But in the meantime, what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? I think the best thing is to explore my work. And I would suggest uh, the three books that make up this series. Mm -hmm. The Empathic Civilization, which is the, the uh, relook at our evolutionary history on this planet as a species. Yes. The Empathic Civilization. The second book, The Third Industrial Revolution, which has become the framework book for many countries in the world to transition into this new economy. And most importantly for now, the zero marginal cost society, because that provides, if you will, the narrative on how we actually make a shift into a new economic paradigm and begin to learn how to share on a collaborative commons uh, in an Internet of Things world. So I think all three books uh, were my way of trying to understand and move the conversation in my own mind and I would suggest them especially the zero marginal cost society that kind of puts it all together in my mind at least. Fantastic and we've had a, the pleasure of having you for such a long time but if we are to encapsulate our conversation in a single message that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this conversation with you what would you like that to be? We have now within our grasp uh, technology revolution, the Internet of Things, that allows us to create a third industrial revolution, connect the human race in real time, so that we can begin to produce and share our economic and social life together and think as an extended human family. And it's also going to allow us, this Internet of Things platform and third industrial revolution, to begin to uh, put our fellow creatures into the mix. So we began to see all of our fellow creatures as part of our evolutionary family. This Internet of Things, Third Industrial Revolution, connects all of us, the human world, the natural world, so we can begin to take responsibility for each other. So we can begin to act on behalf of each other, our fellow human beings, our fellow creatures in the earth we live in. That's the great benefit of this new architecture. And so we don't want to waste the Internet of Things on trivialities. We want to make sure that this platform will create a truly global collaborative commons. This collaborative commons is what it sounds. It's a collaborative commons. We now have the opportunity for the human race to come together and each of us share what we have to share with each other. We can produce and share 
our own ideas, our knowledge, our energy, our 3D printed products. We can share ourselves with each other both in the economic realm and the social realm on a collaborative commons and engage directly as a species. We can begin to know each other as one family. That's now there. Kids are Skyping in global classrooms. They're gossiping on Twitter. They're engaging each other on Facebook. They're breaking down all the barriers, the xenophobia, the parochialisms of the past. And they're beginning, just beginning to open up the walls. So we begin to think of ourselves as one human race living with our fellow creatures in one biosphere community. We're beginning to mature, hopefully, as a species. So my hope is that the Zero Marginal Cost Society, the book, will begin that conversation and I hope go way beyond uh, what we talked about today in the next 10 years. Jeremy Rifkin, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me.